place was just devastated. A lot of little um, villages and hamlets uh, had been totally destroyed. Everything, buildings burnt to the ground and just um, very little left there. And in fact, very few people in the whole area. It was quite eerie and um, um, it was certainly an environment in which we were very concerned about the situation. Dilly was still burning, uh, there was rubbish everywhere, including human feces in almost every building, um, and there were dead bodies lying around which had to be recovered. It was a um, pretty um, horrific uh, time to be in East Timor at that time. There were people murdered and we were subsequently finding bodies in wells and so on for a good number of months afterwards. Quite early in the morning, at one, two o'clock in the morning, as we did this, um, we were able to make out the fires that uh, were still burning at Dili. And so I was on the bridge at the time, and there were a number of us up there looking at this. And that focused the mind on why we were there and uh, what we're about to be part of. It's 20 years since independence was declared in Timor-Leste. New Zealand played a big role in making sure the country transitioned to a functioning democracy. As part of an international effort, we helped build a nation from the ground up after 24 years of Indonesian rule that marked a dark period in the country's history, one of violence, horror, starvation and many thousands of deaths. But New Zealand was late to the party and has copped criticism for not helping the Timorese people earlier. Kia ora, I'm Alexia Russell and today on The Detail, we're going to look at our ties to this young democracy – starting with Phil Goff well before he was Auckland's mayor. My uh, involvement with East Timor goes actually back to 1975 when they were invaded. I was one of the original members of the Campaign for an Independent East Timor Committee and uh, outraged at the invasion and the killings, a little bit like uh, Ukraine actually, but this time the West chose to turn a blind eye because they were fearful that, the, um, uh, that Fretilin were a, a communist organisation. In, in a whole lot of senses, the reaction from the Western or democratic world was shameful. Uh, it was almost a condoning of the invasion, notwithstanding the ample evidence of the high level of uh, killing of people, of civilians. Um, and we, we even had Australian and New Zealand journalists murdered there. And um, neither Australia nor the United States, nor New Zealand spoke out in strong terms about what an outrage it, it was. It, it, it seemed so un, unfair uh, that we had turned a blind eye to the plight of the Timorese at, at their time of need. In 1981, Goff became a Labour Party politician. And uh, I, I kept up an interest in Timor, particularly in the 90s again, when the resilience of the resistance um, was being maintained and sent some shameful letters to uh, Don McKinnon as foreign minister, <laughs> shameful because they were so harsh. Uh, and uh, I went to East Timor under the occupation with a parliamentary delegation in 94. And then, of course, I was part of the um, uh, International Observer Force in, in the referendum in 1999, where we went to a little place called Inaro. And the New Zealand policeman that was stationed there said um, he greeted us with I tried to get hold of you. It's not safe here. You shouldn't have come. <laughs> Which, uh, we later found out from the Australian intelligence that the militias were planning uh, to attack and kill the observers uh, in, in Inaro. So we were probably lucky to have uh, 
survived the occasion. Um, but it was an amazing experience just watching the people lined up from five in the morning, determined to vote for independence. The vote did go overwhelmingly in favour of independence, but it wasn't a smooth ride. The militias, with the support of the Indonesian authorities, then sought to overturn that result um, by violent action. And uh, several days after the referendum, we were evacuated by um, the Air Force from the airport in Dili because it was simply not safe to stay there. Notwithstanding that, they did achieve independence and it was, it was a huge privilege then to go back as Foreign Minister of the New Zealand Government to work alongside some of the people that I'd kept contact with, like uh, uh, the newly uh, re-elected President Ramos Horta, to, to work with them to see how we could help them, how we could... Uh, help this incredibly poor but very proud people to establish an independent state uh, arising out of the ashes, literally the ashes and the ruins of what the militias and the Indonesians had left behind them. Three United Nations staff are now believed to have been killed in East Timor following the referendum on the future of the territory. One UN worker is known to have died in the incident in the town of Atsabi on Monday, but it's feared that two other employees missing following the same incident are dead. Meanwhile, one of the group of New Zealand MPs observing the vote in East Timor, Labour's Phil Goff, says Jakarta must do more to keep the territory safe. Mr Goff told Morning Report the New Zealand MPs will make that clear when they meet Indonesia's defence and foreign ministers this week. We will be insisting that Indonesia sends its key people into this territory to direct its army to stop support for the militia, to direct its police that they will provide protection uh, for, for civilians in this country. New Zealand saw along with other countries in the region that what was going on in East Timor was totally unacceptable about how the East Timorese were being treated, especially in, in 99. Um, and there was a huge amount of pressure applied to uh, by, by you know, like-minded countries, especially Australia, with an expectation that New Zealand would participate with a significant contribution. In charge of the joint New Zealand forces was Major General Martin Dunn. So what then happens is things are absolutely turn on their head. Um, the Indonesians are on the ground, remember, they have troops there. Uh, they didn't really interfere with the, the basically the separatists uh, between the, the people who wanted independence. And remember, the conclusion of the referendum was unanimous that people wanted to separate from Indonesia. There were, of course, qu quite a number of people who had familial ties um, and long-standing relations with Indonesia, and they did not want this to happen. They had formed the militia, and the militia uh, had been armed, obviously got arms either uh, indiscreetly or had been given arms. Uh, and they set out to uh, disrupt this. And, of course, they, uh, there were a lot of uh, houses were burned, people were killed. There were significant incidents that were occurring, uh, actually, and it came to its head during the APEC conference here in New Zealand. Um, you had the likes of Bill Clinton, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera, during APEC. Uh, and the decision was made with the UN's uh, consent that, we would be part of an intervention force, uh, which the Australians would lead. It was to be an armed intervention um, and that uh, had the backing of the United Nations. Uh, there would eventually be 22 countries would join this in one shape or another. 
The first move by international forces was to take over the port and stop the forced removal of local Timorese on ships. Indonesians didn't, apart from some random firing, didn't interfere with us. The only people that were going to interfere with us were the militia who had done most of the damage leading up to the 20th and caused, and you know, a lot of people were, as I said to you, there were people murdered and we were subsequently finding bodies and wells and so on for a good number of months afterwards. Uh, but it was very tense. Um, there was smoke everywhere and we drove in to the city and the place had been absolutely ransacked, destroyed. It was unbelievable. I'd seen this sort of thing uh, in Bosnia uh, where, you know, and subsequently, of course, in Afghanistan and elsewhere, total destruction of buildings. And there wasn't a soul around. Um, Every hundred metres would be a group of probably five or six Indonesian soldiers with an Indonesian flag. It wasn't until we got into Dili itself and we drove around. I decided that with my escort that we needed to get out of the vehicle and wander around, which we did. And there was just nobody there. And we couldn't work it out for a while, but we could hear a lot of noise, your voices and so on. So we realised that on the port, all the way along the waterfront, Uh, Behind fences were the uh, East Timorese people who had managed to be flushed. They'd flushed them out of the town and they were living in these basically, uh, you know, squatter settlements along the waterfront. Some of them had been made to wear red and white scarves. um, And, you know, it was really, really quite sinister. Here was a, a city that had been occupied by people damage beyond repair, many buildings burnt or burning, um, and not a soul in it. So those first few first few days um, were just absolutely frantic, you know, getting things set up, getting ready for their, uh, their SAS were no problem. They knew how to look after themselves. They were attached at that point to, the Austra- to an Australian squadron, um, but were acting pretty much independently on their own tasks. And we also had, eventually, I can't remember the dates now, but the helicopters were coming in. We had, we eventually had something like six helicopters, which is a huge deployment for the Royal New Zealand Air Force. The Navy had uh, the logistics support ship. We had the uh, frigate, two frigates at one stage, the Canterbury and Tikaha. Um, all up, we would, we would have at its peak about 11, 1,100 New Zealanders in Timor. Between September 1999 and 2002, more than 5,000 New Zealand Defence Force personnel served in Timor. This included infantry battalions, the Navy and Air Force helicopters. It was the Defence Force's biggest deployment since the Korean War. New Zealand police also served in East Timor. They were all pretty uh, fresh-faced infantry soldiers. For some of them who had been in Bosnia, it was they were you know veterans to it, but there were a lot of new, fresh faces. The mission was to bring stability to East Timor, as it was known then, and stop the violence. The Indonesians, remember, are still on the ground. They have a substantial presence. They were getting molested by the locals every time they, uh, as time went on in September into October. Uh, people started to throw stones at them whenever they went past in vehicles and. There was all sorts of issues that we, and I had the job of getting them to withdraw 
back into their camp, which was right in the middle of Dili. And I would meet with the Indonesian commander every morning at 11 o'clock, go through the charade um, of talking to him about what problems had occurred in the last 24 hours, what he needed to do. And eventually I managed to persuade them that they needed to close in on their own camp. Uh, the people didn't want them there. And then Habibi made the decision that they would accept independence, obviously, for Timor. They had no choice. And that they would withdraw all their forces from uh, East Timor. Yes, but who's going to tell the Indonesians they have to leave? The Indonesians were living in the houses that the Indonesians had built on the water. It was a sort of premier area. So we met them at a headquarters building, all these senior officers, Indonesians. They were sitting on a long table opposite us. I was the lead. And we handed them a piece of paper that was in Bahasa, um, in Indonesian, and in English. And they quietly read it and then looked up, looked at one another and didn't know what to say because what it said was that they would leave, they would they were to be gone. And, of course, they said they couldn't possibly go. And I said to them, you will leave on the date by midnight of that on that particular day. There was a lot of emotion about this. Some of them had been living in Timor for years. Mm. Uh, they had familial ties there. Um, were you holding your breath a bit? Yeah, we were. We were sort of thinking, well, what the hell is this? How's this going to go? We had to put up um, scrim and along the fence line at the port because the locals sensed that something was up. We kept it as tight as we could. And they brought once they brought in two big, huge landing ships to take their vehicles and things out, and then they had to get from their camp, we had to escort them to the port onto these vessels. And I can personally remember with, I can't remember who was with me, whether it was my deputy who was an Italian colonel. Uh, we both lifted the hawser off the bollard on the wharf as the last vessel went out into the harbour and I think it stayed there till the first light in the morning and then they departed wow. uh, and that was that was the end of them um, they'd gone five New Zealand soldiers died during the deployment including private Leonard Manning who was the only one killed in action Leonard Manning was killed in an attack by pro-Indonesian militiamen in the year 2000. His death came in a battle in the Kovalima district near the Indonesian border, where New Zealand had the responsibility for providing security. A scholarship set up by Leonard Manning's family provided educational chances for young Timorese. I know Leonard's mum and dad, uh, Linda and Charlie Manning, uh, got to know them uh, after Leonard had been killed, I think in a little place called Tilimar. Uh, in the Suai area and uh, in fact I've been to visit the site of um, where he was killed and to to, to lay a wreath in, in, in honour of him. Um, Linda and Charlie were remarkable people who felt that their their son's death and wow that, that's big for any parents um, was for a cause that was worthwhile that what New Zealand and New Zealand soldiers were doing there um, was an honourable task and, and one worth sacrifice. Goff is also proud of the way Kiwi troops conducted themselves during the deployment. An abiding memory I have was when I went back um, several months after we were evacuated in the 
uh, in the chaos that followed the overwhelming referendum for, for independence. And I went back as, as foreign minister in January 2000, and we were driving through the province of Suai, where the New Zealand military were largely based. And as we drove along, I was in a Unimog truck with a Kiwi on the side of it. We came through a village where the school had had all the corrugated iron stripped off the roof, which the militias had taken back to West Timor and burnt the building. So the kids were sitting under the tree with their teachers instructing them. And I thought, what a fantastic photo. So I said to my driver, hey, would you stop here, please? I'd love to get a picture of this. So I hopped out of the truck, went across to the fence to take the photo, and the kids looked up and they saw me and they saw the, the truck with a Kiwi on it. And the photo I have of, is of 100 kids rushing towards me with their thumbs up saying, Kiora, Kiwi, um, with, a, with a wonderful welcome. And, and I thought, you know, six months ago, any man in uniform would have been regarded as a threat by these kids. But in a very short space of time, our Kiwi soldiers, because of their ability, you know, coming from a small nation with, you know, Maori and Pacifica soldiers, um, they had this empathy with and, and understanding of the local people, which was reciprocated by them. And it was just a, a wonderful feeling to see how welcome our troops were for the job they were doing so early in the time after, you know, the people had traditionally been dealt with by Indonesian soldiers that they regarded with fear and as a threat. Both Phil Goff and Martin Dunn say the Timor deployment has left a lasting legacy, one which the Australian Prime Minister of the time recognised. John Howard, I'd met him before, but he came up and spoke to me and he said, New Zealand really reached to the back of the cupboard for this one. And we did, you know, it was a major commitment for us. To put a force the size of the battalion that we sent there um, and, and being the first country in after Australia was something that the Australians actually haven't forgotten. And I remember Peter Cosgrove, who was then the Australian general in charge of the uh, forces in, in Timor-Leste, um, speaking to us all and in front of our, our Defence Force personnel, giving the highest credit to the capabilities uh, and the commitment of the New Zealand soldiers, and in a very genuine way. And I, I think Peter Cosgrove did a remarkable job in melding together the cooperation of the Australian uh, and the New Zealand Defence Forces. Um, others came in and there was a, you know, a large multilateral uh, group of people that came in in different capacities. Um, but the hard work on the ground in terms of sheer numbers were, were, was done by the Australians and the New Zealanders. An interfere from, you know, from a Western and even an you know, ANZAC perspective was a very successful mission. We, we made a lot of ties with a lot of our ASEAN partners. Um, we had Filipinos battalion, we had South Koreans, we had uh, a Thai battalion, uh, and those sort of relationships, you can't underestimate them. The experience of working together, um, just the experience, of, the shared experience of achieving a positive outcome for East Timor uh, was in the UN's pantheon of successes was, was right up there. We'd been in Bougainville, we'd been in Bosnia, but, uh, you know, we, here we were now almost in our own backyard realising that this is something that we could 
uh, you know, nation help with nation building, um, which essentially is what it became. And 20 years later, 20 years after that, what is the situation there now? Is it tr- can we truly say this is a functioning democracy? Uh, it is a functioning democracy. On, a, on another occasion, I was there during one of their elections, and uh, uh, at that point, we were still sending in United Nations observers, um, and the elections were properly conducted. People were allowed to speak in opposition. Uh, different parties contested for the result. Um, and I, I believe that they they have maintained an operating democracy, but it hasn't all been easy uh, for the Timorese. There were divisions that emerged after independence. The country is an incredibly poor country. Uh, and, you know, turning that around and changing the realities that they'd, they'd faced as being a country that where people had been denied the, the right to govern themselves and uh, had not received um, the level of education that a, a newly emergent uh, country and a democracy needed, the times always were going to be challenging. Uh, but notwithstanding that, for the Timorese themselves, achieving the right of self-determination, achieving the freedoms that go with being part of a democracy uh, were incredibly important. But, you know, apart from democracy, you also need a job, you need a full stomach, you need a functioning health and education system. And those challenges for a poor country have not been easy to, to, to rise to meet, but improvements have been made. People often say, well, what was, you know, what, what was the best country you went to or what did you like most about, you know, when you're foreign minister and travelling? Timor-Leste is one of the places that, that stand out because it, you know, it, it's for such a long time had a place in my heart as representative of people that had so little when we had so much and didn't have the chance of independence and freedom that, that, that we had because an earlier generation... You know, my parents' generation and my grandparents' generation had been prepared to make sacrifice and fight in wars to preserve our values and, and our way of life. So it's it's a, a country that is so different from New Zealand in so many ways. And the fact that people were, with so little, grateful for what they had and how we were able to help them that does reach down into your heart and, and, and have an impact on you. And uh, it was great to feel that we were there and we were able to make a difference for those people. That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell, produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison, and thanks to Martin Dunn and Phil Goff. Kaki te anō.